0: The text for Pastor John's message this morning is found in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans, verses 28 through 30. We know that in everything God works for good with those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn, among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I would like for us to dwell on the phrase in verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called today. And I'm going to proceed on the assumption that you all agree with last Sunday's message (laughs) because I can't preach the same sermon uh, every week. I have to make progress. And if you don't know what I said last Sunday, then I encourage you to get the tape or the manuscript. I'll sum up my conclusions, though I won't give all the arguments. Please take with you in today's message two conclusions from last week. One, the call referred to in verse 28 when it says called according to his purpose, and in verse 30 when it says those whom he predestined he called, is not a call like, here, Blackie, here, Blackie, come on, girl. It's a call like, Lazarus, come forth. It creates what it commands. It carries the power to produce the obedience that it is summoning. It is an effectual call. Second, predestination is based upon a prior act of what Paul calls in verse 29, foreknowing. But that foreknowing, whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, and whom he predestined, he called, that act of foreknowing is not, as many people try to make it mean, a reference to God's foreknowledge of our self-determined faith. It is a foreknowledge in the sense of Amos 3.2, You only, Israel, have I known from all the peoples on the earth. And 1 Corinthians 8, 3, if one loves God, he is known by God. The knowing is not the intellectual apprehension of a human self-determined act so that God were, as it were, basing his choice upon our act of self-determination. It is an act of choosing, an act of setting his favor upon unconditionally, so that the flow of thought in these verses is that God has given a skyscraper promise, Romans 8, 28 that he will work everything together for your good, whether tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or slaughter. It'll all work together for your good if you are called according to a purpose. And then in verse 29 to 30, he defines the purpose. He chose you before the foundation of the world, having chosen you without any reference to your faith, or to your merit, He predestined you to share the glory of His Son, and now in the pursuit of that destiny, He has effectually called you to faith, so that as you look back on your conversion, you say, God did it all. Praise God. And today, I want us to just take this summary phrase, those whom He predestined, He called and dwell on it. And the way I'd like us to dwell on it is to broaden our textual base outside this text to try to show you that elsewhere in Paul, also in the writings of Luke, also in the writings of John, this is taught. And then we'll close by talking about four or five implications. And then we'll pick it up tonight with some more implications and objections answered. First of all, let's look at Romans 11. Romans 11. In Romans 11, at the beginning of the chapter, the problem is raised whether or not Israel, God's chosen Old Testament people, have been rejected. Paul says, no, they haven't been rejected. He foreknew them. He chose them. Those whom me foreknew, he hasn't rejected. In fact, he argues, I'm a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin and I'm saved. And then he thinks about Elijah. Elijah thought he was the only believer left in Israel. And God now, in verse 4, comes to Elijah. What is God's reply to him? Verse 4, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And then Paul infers for his own day an application. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by Grace, Or literally, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it sought. The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see, ears that should not hear, down to this very day. Now, notice, just as in Elijah's day, God had effectually kept for himself a remnant, 7,000 at least, among the unbelieving nation that had not left him. He had worked to keep for himself a people. So, Paul says, that's the way it is today, too. I'm a Jew, and I'm saved, and there are others around There is an elect remnant. It is a remnant, and then here comes this crucial phrase, according to the election of grace. Now notice he doesn't say the reverse. He doesn't say that God elected people according to whether they chose to belong to the remnant or not. It's the reverse. The remnant has come into being. It is secure and certain in the fulfillment of the new covenant promises because God elected them graciously without any attention to their deeds. It is an election according to grace and a remnant according to the election. Turn with me then to Acts chapter 13. And we'll see whether or not Luke, who was one of the Partners of Paul in his missionary labors. The resident physician who wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else. That's why I named my first son, Karsten Luke. Not sure why Greg Hines did. Wrote more than Paul. You just count up the pages of Luke Acts. It's more than Paul wrote. This is the major writer in the New Testament as far as quantity goes. And he is recording for us here an event in Antioch of Pisidia where Paul is preaching in the synagogue. And as he draws this sermon to a close in verses 47 and 48 of Acts 13, Luke makes a comment about the upshot of this sermon. Here's the closing of the message in verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, says Paul, saying... I have set you to be a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then here's Luke's commentary. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of God and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Now that last statement as many as were ordained to eternal life believed, is identical in meaning to Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Predestination corresponds to ordination to eternal life, and faith corresponds to calling. The calling is effectual. It is the creation of faith. As many as were ordained, believed. Notice, it is not the reverse. As many as believed, God ordained to eternal life. That is not what the verse says. The verse says, as many as were ordained, believe." Belief rests on the ordination. Call rests on predestination. Now, notice in passing, and I'm going to talk about this more tonight, Believing in predestination like Paul does doesn't disincline him one iota from being a frontier missionary. On the contrary, it is Paul's confidence that among all the peoples of the Roman world, God had an elect people whom he would effectually call through the preaching of the gospel that drove Paul Made him confident. You can see that in Acts 18 because in Corinth when he's all discouraged one night, God comes to him in a dream and says, keep on preaching, Paul, and don't be afraid because I have many people in this city. Don't be discouraged, faith in David. God has a people among the Gola. Don't be discouraged in the Philippines. God has a people in Bindanao. Find them. Preach the gospel, and the Holy Spirit will call them. Be the instrument of God's salvation. Be the light to the ends of the world. And I'm going to spend a whole sermon on evangelism and missions, the first week of Missions Week here in just just a few weeks. Turn with me now to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. In the gospel of John, Jesus repeatedly raises the question, why don't people believe on me? Why do the Jews reject their Messiah? And never does he answer the question with the popular answer today, well, because men have the power of self-determination and they choose not to believe. That's why they don't believe. That's an utterly inadequate answer for Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's always pressing the answer back behind that answer To something deeper. You can see it, for example, in verses 25 to 27. We'll start in the middle of verse 25 of John 10. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness to me. But you do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. Notice, it does not say, you do not belong to my sheep because you do not believe. It does not say, you do not belong to my sheep because you do not believe. It says the reverse. You do not believe. Why? You're not a sheep. Sheep hear the shepherd and believe. That's the mark of a sheep. If you don't do it, you're not a sheep. Faith doesn't make a person into a sheep. Being a sheep enables a person to have faith, which is just the same as saying, those whom he predestined, he called. And those who were foreordained to eternal life believe." Those who are sheep hear and believe, and those who aren't don't. My faith did not make me into a sheep. God made me into a sheep according to the election of grace which he gave me in Christ Jesus ages ago. To those whom he predestined, he gave his effectual call. Now, the conclusion I draw from these three texts, in addition to Romans 8, And oh, how we could multiply. You you could walk through the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, chapter 3, verse 20, chapter 6, verses 44 and 65, uh, chapter 7, verse 17, chapter 10, verses 25 and 27, chapter uh, 18, verse 37. Predestination is all over the place in the Gospel of John. It is the most predestinarian book in the New Testament, ironically. Now I was just talking with a woman last night in our church who's so grieved about a Bible study that she's in where they're working through the Gospel of John and they never refer to it. And if anybody says, well, what about this text? They just get clobbered. That's not a biblical teaching. It's everywhere in the Gospel of John for those who have eyes to see and a heart willing to submit. Now, let's talk about four or five implications here at the end. one, These doctrines of unconditional election, predestination to glory and effectual call, present everybody in this room with a choice this morning between popular philosophical speculation on the one hand and pervasive biblical teaching on the other. Here's what I mean. Popular philosophical speculation says, in order for a person to be held accountable for his choices, he has to have the power of final self-determination. And pervasive biblical teaching says men are accountable for their choices and they do not have the final power of self-determination. God has it. What are you going to choose? Philosophy? Common sense of fallen creatures? Or the Bible? I am often... Presented with the criticism of people who think like I do about these things, like this. Well, what's wrong with with you and those who think like you is that you are driven by an inexorable rationalism and logic that forces you to say things about God that aren't taught in the scriptures. Your system is a Concoction of inexorable human logic. It is not the product of faithful biblical interpretation. Now, I've thought a lot about that criticism and weighed it to see whether I'm guilty of that and whether other people are. And here's what I've come up with. I think, inasmuch as we might be tempted to do that, the opposite is just as true. For example, I was recently talking with a minister... And I asked him, what do you make of Acts 13, 48, where it says those who are ordained to eternal life believed.'" And he responded very quickly and said, well, I interpret that in the light of all the scriptures that teach that we have the final power of self-determination. I don't let that contradict that. And I said, for example, what what would be a text that teaches that we have the final power of self-determination? And he said, well... I don't mean any particular text. I just mean it's implied everywhere. Everywhere. And so we talked, and what came clear is this He brings to the Bible an assumption, a presupposition. Wherever you see choice and accountability, you have the power of final self determination. You must. And I said, well, Where did you get that assumption? Did that come from the Bible? No, you can't can't find that in the Bible. Nowhere does the Bible teach that you have to have the power of final self-determination in order to be held accountable before God. That's a philosophical, common-sense notion that isn't in the Bible. So I repeat, you are presented this morning with a choice. Will you follow the Scriptures who teach that God has the final say in salvation in your life? and yet you are accountable to believe, or will you follow the popular philosophical notions that God can't have the final say because then you couldn't be held accountable, which is not taught in Scripture, it's taught in philosophy. Which are you going to choose, your inherited notions or the Bible? And then I ask, really, who is enslaved to rationalism and philosophy? Second, the doctrines of unconditional election and predestination and effectual calling tend to root out all boasting and pride and self-reliance. You ever get gripped by these things, you will be a broken person. You will not take one ounce of credit for your salvation, neither the provision of it in the cross nor the application of it, In faith, you will give it all to God, and you will humble yourself before Him. Now, here again, in talking with my friends who don't agree with me, this is one of the things they say. They say, Piper, you don't need to say that faith is a gift in order to eliminate boasting. You don't need to say that God gives faith. All you need to do is say that salvation is by faith, not by works, because faith itself rules out boasting. And then they quote Romans 3.27, which says, Boasting is excluded. On what principle? On the principle of works? No. On the principle of faith. And they say, see, faith all by itself excludes boasting. You don't need to be driven by logic to say that faith is a gift in order to rule out boasting. To which I respond twofold. One, I'm not driven by logic to say faith is a gift. I'm driven by exegesis. It's taught in the Bible. It's icing on the cake that it happens to smash pride. But that's not the reason I invent it. It's taught in the Bible that faith is a gift. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Nobody would ever believe and perform the most beautiful act of morality that can be performed, namely faith, if God didn't enable us to get rid of our hard hearts and have a heart of flesh. But that's not the main response. My main response to this criticism is, yes, yes, faith eliminates boasting by itself. Why? Because faith in the New Testament is faith in all of salvation, not a little piece of salvation. New Testament faith is not just faith in God to provide us with the cross. It's faith in God to work in us that which is pleasing in His sight. Faith in the New Testament doesn't just say, I choose you, Christ. Faith in the New Testament says, I rest in you, Father, to draw me to Christ. Of course faith rules out all boasting. It's faith in everything the Bible says, not just a little piece of what the Bible says. Faith eliminates boasting because faith trusts God not only to give Christ, but to give faith. Faith trusts God to change me, not just to offer me gifts. Suppose that you were drowning in the lake and the Son of God were standing on the beach and he saw you drowning and he tossed you an inner tube and it landed in your vicinity and you flailed your way over to it and got a hold of it and paddled your way to shore gasping. You'd thank him for the inner tube at least. But suppose that you were dead at the bottom of a lake, and your family was dragging the lake for you, missing you since the morning. And you had been an enemy of the Son of God all your life, rejecting Him and spurning Him. And He walks up and says, You can put that stuff away, I'll find it. And He swims out and dives down and pulls you up and pulls you to shore lays you down, kneels down, and works on you all day, all afternoon, works, works. And all of a sudden, there's a twitch of life. And you breathe. And you're alive again. And he falls at your side, dead, exhausted. You get up on your knees, and you look down at his face with tears of love streaming down your face. And you hear a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. Rise, my son. He comes alive, And he stands up. And he looks down at you and you see in his face more personal affection for you than you have ever seen in any face in all the world. And he, he puts his hand down very gently and yet very firmly takes your hand and pulls you up and looks you in the face and says, follow me and I will work everything together for your good all the days of your life. Which way did you get saved? You flail your way over to the inner tube and kick your way to heaven? Or did you get raised from the dead? How are you going to give God glory today? How are you going to sing amazing grace? He threw the tube and I swam to it. Fifty percent to God and fifty to me. Ninety to God and ten to me. You name it. Brothers and sisters, could it be that many of the problems and struggles in your life today are owing to the fact that you never knew how you got saved. And therefore, you've never known Christ. You've lived a half-life with God. You've thought it was half yours and half His. And this morning, maybe all of a sudden, you could wake up to what He did for you. So that you could start loving him with an appropriate affection. So that you could be humbled to the dust. Could it be that this would be the day you would be awakened to life because you heard the gospel for the first time in its power that it was God who swam to the bottom at the cost of his son's life and pulled you up and not just heaved you an inner tube and waited for your self-determined flailings to get you onto the boat? Well, there are lots of other implications. Let me mention one or two more. If you believe these doctrines of grace, sovereign grace, you will not only be humbled towards God and give Him glory, but you will be humbled towards each other. Ephesians chapter 1 says, chapter 4, 1 and 2, lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all lowliness and meekness, with patience forbearing one another. How is it that a high calling, the highest calling imaginable, produces a lowly walk? Shouldn't a high calling produce a high walk? I should wear white shoes and patent leather clothes and have a big car and have people jump when I snap my finger. I'm a child of the king. That's popular. That's popular. It's not biblical. Why is it that a high calling produces a lowly walk? Why is it that when you're called to sit at the right hand of the Son, you become everybody's servant? It's because the call was free to you when you were dead drunk in the gutter. And when you get picked up out of the gutter and brought into the palace... Stuffs you with the coffee of grace and gets you all sober. You don't start strutting around as though you belong here. You say, where can I serve? Where can I clean? I've never been in a place like this before. This, I can't believe it. I can't believe I'm here. Christianity is just utterly surprising to those who have been saved. I'm saved. it's impossible. How can I ever boast over anybody again? It just, just wipes out boasting over other people. And finally, it also causes us to see and appreciate the meaning of grace. If you embrace unconditional election, predestination to share the glory of the Son, and effectual calling by which you were brought from the bottom of the lake into the kingdom of heaven. You will know the meaning of grace. But if you don't believe that, you won't know the meaning of grace. Let me show you one last text, and this is in closing. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. I want you to know why in the next 10 or 15 years, as I use this phrase... Sovereign grace. I want you to know why I put the word sovereign on the front of it. When I say sovereign grace, I mean that grace is that in God which moved him not only to offer salvation, grace is that in God which effectually saves. Grace is not merely an offer of salvation. It is a power to save. Let's see that in verse 5 of Ephesians 2. Even when we were dead through trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ, parenthesis. Now, you have to ask, if you're a good interpreter, why this parenthesis? Why does he butt into the middle of this sentence, stick in a parenthesis, and then pick up the sentence and make it so hard to read for us? Let's read it. Even when we were dead through trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ, parenthesis. By grace you have been saved close parenthesis, and he continues, and raised us up with him and made us sit with him in heavenly places. Why did he stick that in there? Why did he say, out of the love with which God loved you, he raised you from the dead. By grace you've been saved. What's that supposed to say about grace? Grace is resurrection power. That's why he put it in there, to teach us the meaning of Grace. Grace is not just throwing an inner tube. It's diving down with divine power. It's raising the dead. It's grasping the saint and saying, follow me and leading us to glory infallibly according to an eternal decree. Grace saves. It doesn't just offer salvation for us to be the final arbiter about as though the spread of the gospel were finally going to be dependent on independent human will. So, we will never feel the wonder of grace until we have surrendered the right to have the last say in our salvation. I'll repeat it. We will never sing the glory of grace We will never know the meaning of grace. We will never glorify God for His grace until we surrender the right to have the last say in our salvation. I close with a story. Herod put on his royal robes in Acts 12. He sat on his royal throne. He spread before him the people of Tyre and Sidon and it says he gave an oration. And they loved it because they wanted to get into his good favor. And he said, the voice of a God and not of a man. The The voice of a God and not of a man. And he loved it. And Luke says, the angel of the Lord smote him because he did not give God glory and he died eaten by worms. Now I ask you, if the wrath of God... Breaks out against a man for failing to give God the glory for so little a gift as rhetorical excellence. Under how much danger does a person live who refuses to give God glory for the most excellent gift of faith? Shall we pray? Father in heaven, creator of the universe lover of our souls we bless your name and having received salvation as an utterly free gift of sovereign grace our hearts go out to those in this room who are not yet born of God Oh, how we would love to be the instrument of their salvation through the preaching of the truth. Use it, Sovereign Holy Spirit, in this moment to create anew a believer. Ten believers. And draw to yourself effectually and irresistibly those whom you have appointed unto eternal life. And let none who have felt the tug of your Holy Spirit depart without the Savior. In his great name we pray. Amen.